If you've got a Bible with you, please open it to Acts chapter 27. We, we, are, we are in the home stretch on Acts, guys. This, is, this has been, we've been here for a while. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have the text on the screen. And if, if you're in a place where you really can't see the screen and need to, uh, please feel free to, to move about the uh, cabin right now and, and, uh, and remedy that. But um, let's pray before we start. Lord, I pray that as we go to your word now, that you would speak to us, that it would be more than words on a page, that it would be transformative, that the Holy Spirit would use your scripture uh, to shape your people so that we would function in the world the way you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, um, cinema has given us characters that really capture the human condition. Right? You can think of a few of these like, you know, Charles Foster Kane from Citizen Kane or, or uh, Deckard from Blade Runner, any Blade Runner fans. And, and of course, uh, uh, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> and uh, the reason, <laughs> for those of you who don't know Napoleon Dynamite or Uncle Rico, Uncle Rico is a, a down-on-his-lucker kind of guy, and he's the uncle of the two main characters. And you get the sense that he, he kind of missed out on something, and, he, and he's waiting for his big chance. And... He sits down with his nephew at one point, starts reminiscing on his football days. He's like, how much do you want to bet I could throw a football over that mountain over there? And he's like, man, if the coach had put me in fourth quarter, no doubt in my mind, we would have won state. And then I would have gone pro in a heartbeat. Things would be different. I'd be making millions of dollars in a big old mansion somewhere, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. For, for Uncle Rico, there was a wrong turn he took in his life. Just one little sliding door pivot moment that completely dramatically sent him off in another direction. And if only, if only he hadn't missed that opportunity, his life would be so much better. His life would be completely different. He'd be more successful. He'd be who he was meant to be, with who he was meant to be, and he'd have what he was meant to have. But he missed it. Now, the reason I in all seriousness, say that Uncle Rico capture, captures the human conditions because we're all Uncle, Rico, Uncle Ricoing it to some extent. If we sit and think for two seconds, there is something, some opportunity we feel we missed out on in the past, whether it was, man, if I had bought that property back then and held on to it, it'd be worth this much now. I'd be so much richer. Or if only I had bought, you know, Apple stock instead of tricking out my Honda. If only, if only I had done this instead of this, right? If only I had gone into computer science instead of studying Esperanto literature. <laughs> ah, it's a little obscure. <laughs> right? You, you have this, oh, I missed it, and things could have been different. If only I'd asked that person out. If only I hadn't asked that person out. There is some wrong turn you feel you made that cost you that changed your life, and that if you had played that break right, if you had seized that opportunity, you'd be in a very different place, a much better place. Yeah, who's Uncle Rico now, right? All of us. Here's what's worse. We all also know that there are more turns coming, and we are nervous about the next one, because what if we make the wrong turn? What if we miss out again, 
right? What if, what if we choose something that turns out to be disastrous? What if we don't get put in the fourth quarter? We miss out on the mansion, hot tub, and soulmate. We all have not only this regret over past missed opportunities, but we have anxiety over future opportunities. Especially you young folk, especially you students, you're sitting there saying, man, if I don't get 100 on this test, I'm not going to I'm not going to get a, a a GPA that's over 4 and I might as well just go to state school and then I'll just be changing tires somewhere instead of doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Right? There's a real problem. There's a real problem with Uncle Rico's approach of 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 regretting those past wrong turns and being awfully anxious and nervous about the future wrong turns. First of all, it robs you of joy. It is really hard to be joyful about your life if you're sitting there focusing on what you've missed in the past and you're anxious about not throwing away your shot for the future. Here's the other thing. It devalues what you do have, doesn't it? It, you, you look around and you're like, ah, these people, these things, these blessings, these things I'm doing, I haven't accomplished enough. I don't have enough. I, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I missed out. I should be bigger. I should be better. I should have more and be doing more. It creates an impossible anxiety because we're all aware this is a lie, right? Like, like you think that if you had taken that other road, you'd, you would be better. Maybe you wouldn't be, Right? Maybe you'd be in a Venezuelan prison right now. Who knows? (laughs) So it's a lie, but also, when when that is our approach, when we we understand it's up to me to play these breaks right. So we're going to regret the missed opportunities of the past. We're going to stress out over the missed opportunities of of the future. You can absolutely Uncle Rico your life away, can't you? Miss the whole thing by stressing out about choosing the perfect options. I know some of you are hearing me. I know some of you are trying not to. But what do we do about the wrong turns? Because we're aware we took them. Right? I shouldn't have done that. That was a dumb decision. Look at what happened. What do we do about those wrong turns? Well, Acts chapter 27 speaks to this. And you're going to see, because it's not going to be immediately obvious. In fact, Acts 27, some commentators, not very good ones I might add, aren't sure why it's in Acts. They don't see it as contributing to the message of Acts, which makes you say, I probably shouldn't read that commentator. Because just take a look with me right now. If you have your Bible, look at the, look at the space, right? Do you think that Luke, the writer of Acts, is going to give something that much uh, airtime if it doesn't matter, if it's not contributing to the message of Acts? Of course, you wouldn't waste the ink, would you? So here's the thing. Acts 27 is one single narrative. We are going to look at this narrative together. And, and instead of focusing on like the technical details, I want to ask you guys all to try and use your imagination. Try and picture it in your mind's eye. That's the, really the best way to understand this because Acts 27 is not going to tell us. It's going to show us. All right? So let's take a look at verses 1 through 8. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. Now, where are we? Paul is still in Roman custody and he has to go as a prisoner on a ship to Rome to stand trial, all right? And he he may be set free, he may be executed, 
but he's got this journey in the meantime. Did you guys notice that it said we? That means we're in first person. This is one of the two first person sections of Acts. That means Luke was along for this ride. Okay? Interesting side note. This is probably the most complete and specific account we have of ancient uh, sailing. <laughs> Doesn't contribute to anything. I just thought you might like to know. All right. Verse 2, we boarded a ship from Adriamentum about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Okay, I'm going to ask uh, Chris, bring up the map, because this map, we're going to hang out with it a lot. Just keep the map up. The next day, we landed at Sidon. There's Sidon. He started from here, went to Sidon. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed the Lee of Cyprus. All right, so around there. Because the winds were against us. Notice the winds are against them. That is not good. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, right over here, we landed off Myra in Lycia. Everyone see that? There we go. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So an uh, Alexandrian ship meant this was a grain ship coming from Egypt, the breadbasket of the ancient world. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. There's Cnidus, so they're having a hard time getting through here. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmon. So do you guys know what lee, the leeward side is? It means it's the side of land that's sheltered from the wind. So the wind is coming down this way, and they went to this side of Crete where they'd be sheltered from the wind, and they put in there. Uh, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassie. Not much has happened yet, I realize. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. This year, the Day of Atonement was October 5th, um, and so there's a certain time of year. In the Mediterranean, you do not sail kind of from October through February. It is very stormy, very dangerous. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot, that's the navigator, and of the owner of the ship, who would be the captain. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. All right, so they want to go from here, Fair Havens, to Phoenix. You see that? That's just 34 miles right along the leeward side. Paul says, guys, this is not going to be good. Paul might be the most experienced sailor. It is calculated that he has gone about 3,500 miles across the Mediterranean at this point. Right, so he's highly experienced. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. Oh, gentle south wind. Paul, save it. Leave it to the professionals. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster, this was a notorious wind, swept down from the island. 
The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Do you know what giving way and being driven along means? It means we're not even steering. It's like we're, we've gone off a cliff and, yeah, there's no steering when you're off a cliff, right? That's what happened. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So lifeboats on the side of the ship, when you hit a storm, you're supposed to pull it up on board and secure it. This, this storm hit them so suddenly, they didn't even have time to secure the lifeboat. They, they had to get to, to one side of this island, this tiny island, just to be able to secure it. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they, they did something to the hull to, to strengthen it because it was danger, it was, it was, this storm was so fierce it could break the ship apart. All right, so all they can do is secure things, secure the hull, and then we're at the mercy of the ship. And it said they were afraid of being driven on, on the sands of Sirtis. This was like the Bermuda Triangle of the Mediterranean. It was notorious. Tons of ships wrecked there. It's down here. Okay, they're up here. Do they know where they are? They have no clue where they are. Are you starting to feel nervous for them? Are you starting to be able to, to imagine what it would be like to be on this grain ship right now? How terrified they must be. If not, keep reading. It says, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. It's not a good sign. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Okay, so this, this ship would have been half a city block big. It's got 276 people on board. You got soldiers, you got sailors, you got slaves, you got prisoners. Everybody right now is like, we are dead. We, we're, we, we can't steer, we don't know where we are, right? Have you ever, has anyone ever been out in a stormy sea? like surfing or something like that? Like, you know how when you guys go to the ocean, you're like, oh, the waves are so big. That was about a foot that broke on you, all right? I, I've, I've had a 10-footer break on me surfing in a storm. I thought I was going to die. These are tempest waves. This is like the movies, down one wave, up the other, right? What's it sound like? The storm is unrelenting. You haven't seen the sun. You haven't seen the stars. You're there's probably vomit everywhere because you're not keeping food down from the seasickness. Everyone's terrified. And it, it says that even these seasoned sailors give up all hope of finally being saved. I don't know if you've been in a situation where everyone believes they're going to die. We've got one as a family. I'll tell you about it another time. It's pretty fun. But in, into this crisis. Into this, we're all going to die. We're never going to get to Rome. God gives two promises. Look with me at verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Not helping Paul. No, I, I don't think he was trying to do I told you so, even though he did. I think instead he's trying to say, hey, remember when you didn't listen to me? This is what happened. Maybe listen to me now. 
says, now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Okay? So into, into desperation, into all hope lost, God speaks two promises. One, Paul's going to get to Rome. Two, no one's going to die. How many promises? Two. Into the most hopeless of situations. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Okay, so the good news is, is you're nearing land and the bad news is it's nighttime and you're nearing land. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. They're like, hey, we're just going to go out and put some more anchors. And the sailors are like, we're pretty sure that we can get out of this. We're not so sure about that. <laughs> then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. He said, like, you know, either they hadn't been eating because it's impossible to eat or because they're thinking they're going to be at sea for months and need to just barely survive. He's like, eat, you're going to be fine. Get your strength up. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. Now, some people see him doing communion there. I don't think that's what's happening. That was the Jewish custom. Give thanks, break your bread and eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So they're, they're believing the promise, right? They're like, won't be needing this. <laughs> Getting rid of the grain, and you'll see why. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach. <laughs> That's like seeing a Denny's when you have, I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe a little more so. When they decided to run the ship aground, if they could, right? So sandy beach, a bay and a sandy beach, uh, is about as good as you could ask for. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Right, so the rudders have been lashed up uh, so they wouldn't break. And so now they're getting the ship as light as possible so they can get as close to the beach as they can. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. We're home free, boys. But don't forget, this is a disaster movie. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. Oh, my gosh. The bow 
stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. How strong are these waves? Remember, even though they're talking, there's still a tempest going. So the bow is stuck, and it's like an anvil, and the waves are like a hammer so that the ship starts breaking apart just when you thought you were going to make it, right? The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. Oh, no, to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Can't Paul just get to Rome already? But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. What was God's first promise? You're not going to die. So they, I'm not going to keep reading. They, they landed on Malta, right? Can we get the map back? The way that they wanted to go was just up through here and then to Italy. This is where they end up, right? They got blown about, that's about 600 miles, and they land on Malta. Uh, some things happen on Malta. They spend the winter there. Then they find another ship. And look at, just listen, verse 14 in the next chapter. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. What was God's other promise? Paul was going to stand before Caesar in Rome, right? So into absolute certain death and despair, God speaks to promises he fulfills both promises. Now, let me ask you this. Did everything go right? I just showed you what the journey was supposed to be. Did everything go well? Did they make the best decisions possible? No, they made some pretty boneheaded decisions, didn't they? But isn't it amazing that God still got them to the right place by the wrong route? So even though they boneheaded it up, God still kept his promises, right? What we see here is that God's providence is unstoppable. God's providence is unstoppable. I'm going to define that word providence. See, sometimes we think of God acting as like direct intervention, like God shows up, speaks, or something like that. That's not what God usually does. Providence means that God is able to orchestrate events to get his desired results, to accomplish his purposes, you don't always see it, but remember, this text doesn't tell us, it shows us. Everything went wrong, yet God got them there alive in one piece and got Paul to Rome. God's providence is unstoppable. I don't typically quote Bible commentators, but I'm going to quote John Stott for you on this passage. So Paul had expressed his intention to proceed straight from Jerusalem to Rome. Instead, he was arrested in Jerusalem, subjected to endless trials, imprisoned in Caesarea, threatened with assassination by the Jews, nearly drowned in the Mediterranean, killed by the soldiers, and poisoned by a snake that happened on Malta. Right? That is far from a straight route. That is far from things going nice, smooth, and easy. Yet, he still got there. God was not stopped by everything going wrong. God's providence is unstoppable. What is to be our response. Well, it's that we need to walk and trust in God's unstoppable providence. Now, I, I purposefully say two things, walk and trust, right? Because what we do matters, right? If we think, well, 
God's going to get me there no matter what. Like, if God wants it from my life, well, I'm just going to watch HGTV. And, and uh, I know that I'm going to run out of money, but I'm not even going to look for a job. I'm just going to eat chips. And right? It's not what we see in the text either, is it? But remember, Paul's like, hey, God, not one of you are going to die, but we do need to find a beach. Right? And then when, when, the, uh, when the, the, the sailors are trying to escape, Paul says to them, hey, uh, soldiers, if those guys get away, we're not going to live, right? So even though God had made the promise and God fulfilled the promise, human activity still mattered, right? What he did mattered. So we need to walk and trust. Trust what? Trust that God is going to keep his promises. Now, for some of us, it's like, well, which is it? Do I need to walk or do I need to trust? And the answer is, of course, both. It is a very mysterious relationship between human responsibility, making the best choices, giving it our best effort, giving things commitment, seeking wisdom, and the rest of it, and trusting in God's providential hand. You need both. So when you have one of those turns coming up, a decision to make, Seek the best wisdom you can, absolutely. Give it your all. But realize that your ability to predict what's going to happen is almost non-existent, right? We can think back through our lives and all that, oh, I didn't see that coming. Probably the best things that have happened to you, you didn't plan, right? And probably some of your best plans resulted in some of the worst things. So... So we cannot trust alone in our ability to control outcomes. We don't control it. But we need to walk and trust. Which promises? Because we can't just say, well, I'm going to make it to land safely. That's a promise in the Bible, right? That promise wasn't given to us. It was given to those sailors for that time. What are some promises God has given us that actually lets us trust that even if I kind of make a boneheaded decision, even if I don't play every break right, that God's purposes for me are going to be fulfilled. Well, first of all, we're promised that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And I realize there are some very difficult things that fall under the heading of all things. There's tragedies in there. I know. Also, I don't know about you, but reading the news does not encourage me. I was reading a foreign affairs article the other night while I was trying to go to bed. Bad move. It was like, here's the 10 ways that humanity could destroy itself in the next 100 years. I'm like, oh my gosh. Right? I'm like, well, what do I do? What action do I take? But Christ has promised to build his kingdom. So even if things go horribly wrong, that's not going to be stopped, is it? God's providence is unstoppable. There is a, a steady drumbeat of people announcing the death of the, the, of, of the Christian church. It's like, well, that's not true. It's bigger than it's ever been globally, just not in the West. But still, Christ has promised the church will never fail, right? There's been a people of God now for, oh, what is it, 4,500 years? Came close a few times to vanishing, but it's not going to. Why? Because God promises that it will last. Not only that, we're promised that God's eye is on a sparrow that falls from its nest. How much more so on you? You think that God isn't aware of the 
home purchase decision or the college decision or the job decision that's facing you right now or could, that you could be facing in the next few years? Of course he's aware. His eye is on a sparrow that falls from the nest. We're promised that God directs the steps of the godly. We're promised that he rejoices over you. We're promised that rest and comfort comes to those who are weary and heavy burdened, who lay their burdens at the feet of Jesus. That's a promise. We're promised that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And these are just some. That was just a little brainstorm sesh. You can find way more. All right? And it may not look likely. You may say, well, but I've screwed my life up so bad. Doesn't matter. Even your outstanding ability to make terrible decisions does not stop God's providence. You guys can come in. That's totally cool. I'm, I'm reaching the end here. What does this mean? Well, one time I was um, driving through what I found out was actually the land of biblical plagues, Texas. I know some of you are from Texas. And you're saying, don't mess with Texas. And I say, I notice you don't live there. <laughs> but I was driving one night in Texas. And you know the deal. It was a, a clear night, starry sky. It was one of those Texas roads, completely flat, completely straight for like 100 miles. All right? And so I'm just driving along. And the first thing that happens is a storm breaks out, like lightning, thunder, rain, just blinding rain from, from everywhere, like out of nowhere. All of a sudden, I'm in the storm, like, oh, my gosh. And then I come through that, and then it was fog, like, like pea soup fog, like you couldn't see anything fog. And, and then I, I come through that, and I thought the rain had come back because there was, like, wet things hitting, but huge drops. And I realized those aren't drops of rain. Those are locusts. I'm flying through a gigantic, through a gigantic swarm of locusts like that lasted for miles. You see biblical plagues. I'm like, like you know, what's, what's next? Frogs or something like that? And it was. No, I'm kidding. But needless to say, visibility wasn't great. I couldn't see very far ahead at all. But driver's ed came back. You know what came back from driver's ed? And this is true. Now, would it have been a solid move to pull over and wait it out? Probably. I was in my 20s. I was unable to make good decisions. <laughs> that lane line, that's what they told you in driver's ed. When you get in bad visibility, you could still see the lane line. It glows through everything. And if you just look at that lane line and keep going forward, you're going to be fine. You'll stay on the road, right? That's what it's like. That's what it means to walk and trust. You keep moving forward to the best of your ability, and you trust that God is leading you. You trust that God is going to take you in the right direction, that you will be the person God wants you to be, that you will accomplish what God has for you to accomplish, so that even if everything goes wrong, God is still going to fulfill his promise, because God's providence is unstoppable. We need to walk and trust. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith. That you would give us faith to walk in trust. That, that trusting you would motivate us to dare greatly. That, that it would motivate us to, to boldness and to courage. Not fearing and regretting over every wrong turn that we've taken. Because we know that your providence is so unstoppable. 
that you can lead us to the right place, even by what we think is the wrong road. Thank you, God.